So you can go ahead and open up your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we're three weeks into the new year, into January, and I'm just curious, did any of you make any kind of New Year's resolution? Just a show of hands here. Okay, am I the only one? I see one, you and me then, okay? So, so just, a, just a couple of you are willing to admit it. Well, I read one website that said that 34% of Americans, but apparently only 1% of Island Ponders, <laughs> set resolutions or goals in 2024. And of the people that set resolutions, what do you think was the biggest goal or resolution for uh, the year of 2024? Uh, Yeah, it would be fitness, fitness or health. So 48% of people, I got got a little selfie here, as you can tell. 48% of people who made resolutions wanted to improve their fitness or health. Now, the second was finances. Now, I have to admit that I am one of those who made a goal to get healthier in 2024. Admittedly, though, I've made that goal many times before, and you've never seen me on the fitness on the cover of fitness magazine, so I'm not making any promises. But that was my goal for 2024, and so uh, my goal was to exercise 150 minutes of vigorous exercise per week. And that's because I read a study that said that if you exercise for at least 150 minutes per week, then your life expectancy goes up by 30 plus percent. Places had it different percentages, but it was in the 30s. Uh, So it goes up when you exercise that much. So I said, I want to live longer, so I'm going to try to exercise more often. And so January 1 comes along. It, It just came too early this year. And I began exercising. It was a holiday, so the kids were at home, and so I couldn't go to the gym. So I instead did one of those uh, intense, high-intensity training workouts on uh, YouTube where I followed along with the fit person that was on the video. And so I struggled through 30 minutes of jumping and bending and getting up and going down and, and, uh, and, and squatting and all of these things and pushing up and pushing down. And in 30 minutes, I was done. I made it. Day one, over. So the next day, I did another YouTube workout. Kids were, I, I believe, still at home. Uh, and so some of my kids joined me that day. And again, we went up and down, bent over and pushed up and, and squatted and, squ- and, and did all these things and planked this way and twisted while you planked and, you know, did pretzels. I don't know, whatever else here. <laughs> 30 minutes were done again, 60 minutes for that week. And then surprise, surprise, that evening, my back started spasming, if that's a word there. I, had, I started having all sorts of spasms in my back and I was done for the week. So I only made it 60 minutes for that first week. Not a good start, right? Well, I'm not telling you this to get you to feel sorry for me because telling you this because of what happened next. So by the following Monday, I was starting to feel well enough to start exercising again. And so I gingerly started going up 
and down and bending over and pushing up and doing all these different things that they were having me do. And after the first day, and then after the second day, I made it through and my back was sore, but it it didn't spasm. And so that week, last week, I ended up doing 120 minutes of exercise. Made it not quite 150, but better than before. And then we enter into this week. And so I continued the same routine. And I did, I went up and down, bent over, squatted up, squatted down and all these things. And my back still felt sore, but it wasn't, it didn't spasm again. In fact, what I noticed by the third week, that some of the things that I struggled with on week one were getting just slightly easier by week three. Now what's happening here? More than likely, my weak body was getting a little bit stronger. My back muscles had been able to manage just a little bit better at all the ups and downs that I was going through. And while I'm sure I'm going to have issues and I'm not making any pronouncements of of skinny Kyle in the months to come, uh, I've come a long way in three weeks. To put it another way, what I did in week one helped me get to what I needed to do in week three. And in our passage today, that's exactly what we're going to be seeing. We've been going through the, the Sermon on the Mount. And in the first part of Matthew 5, Jesus gives nine Beatitudes, where, where he starts out sentences by saying, blessed, blessed, meaning that if you do these things, that you will be blessed. And as a reminder from the past two weeks of this message, uh, blessed in this context is what I call having the smile of God on your life. It's living in a way that is approved by God. And others translate it, uh, the word blessed, as happy. Not happy in the sense of how pancakes make me happy when I eat them, but happy in the sense that, that you're knowing that you're living under the smile, under the blessing of God, because you're living in a way that he approves. And when you do these things that we talked about the first two weeks, when you live being poor, like being poor in spirit, like a mourning over your sins, like being meek towards others, uh, hungering for righteousness, you will be blessed. But as we look at the next three Beatitudes today, we're going to see something similar to uh, my workouts this, these past few weeks. The three Beatitudes that we're going to be looking at today are not possible to do in the way that God's calling us to do unless you're already doing the first four. In fact, the three that we're going to be looking at today are more of a byproduct of the first four of what comes out of hungering for righteousness and mourning over your sins and living poor in spirit. And so let's go ahead and let's uh, take a look at Jesus's words in Matthew chapter five. We'll look at verses seven through nine. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to look at each of these 
uh, individually, but I'm going to go out of order and I'm going to start with the second one first. And so here's the fifth way that we can live a blessed life. And that is a blessed life comes from having a pure heart before God, a pure heart before or for God. Again, he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to talk about lust. But in the verse here, that's not what he's referring to when he talks about pure in heart. Lust more refers to impurities in the mind. Here, Jesus is talking about impurities in the heart. And impurity of the heart includes impurities of the mind, but it also includes a lot more. And so what is the heart that Jesus is referring to? Because he's not talking about having a good cardiovascular system. In the Bible, the heart refers to the inner being of a person. It's a combination of the mind and of the will and of the emotion. So it's all of this put together. And so in, in Romans 1.21, Paul says this about the heart. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened. So th- these people knew God, but their hearts didn't know him. Their inner being didn't know him. Then in uh, another passage in Matthew, Jesus says, for out of the heart, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. So out of the heart, uh, meaning that the, the heart in the spiritual sense is sort of like the central train station where all the purities and all the impurities come into and out of. And go out of there. And so who are the people that Jesus says are blessed here? It's the pure in heart. That's a little concerning, isn't it? Because who of us is pure in heart? Who of us is totally pure? I have here some water. Uh, In fact, this is composed of 99.9% Island Pond bottled water. So this is good water. I drink this all week long, and uh, and it it tastes very good. We have it brought in every week, or every couple of weeks, refilled here. And so it's 99.9% good Island Pond water. It looks nice. It's clean, or at least it looks clean. And most likely it even tastes fine. But I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I'm not going to drink it. Because the reason I'm not going to drink it is because the, the other 0.1% of the water comes from an island pond toilet. So 99.9% clean and 0.1% dirty 
guess what? Still equals dirty. And this is an example of the heart that Jesus is referring to. No matter how pure, I put that in quotes, no matter how pure your life might be. Listen, it's not pure enough. And I put myself in that same category as well. There are impurities in our hearts that are polluting everything else that we do. And so you can't make yourself pure enough to be considered pure in heart. It's just not possible. So what Jesus is talking about here is something that we can't do in our own power. True purity only comes through Jesus Christ. You will only see God through Jesus. We're going to come back to this idea at the end of the sermon. So let's continue on to the next blessing here. And that is that a blessed life comes from being a peacemaker. So again, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Now, what is a peacemaker? Peace is linked to the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom bears the idea of, of wholeness and overall well-being. And so when a, when a Jew would say shalom, he was wishing them something more than the absence of trouble. So he was wishing them uh, everything that would make up a whole and complete, and complete life. And so the, the peace here that he's talking about is not what I mean when I snap at my kids and say, give me some peace and quiet. It's different. To be a peacemaker is to be someone who makes, meaning strives for, goes after peace in the sense of a complete or whole life. So being a peacemaker is not tolerating everything or avoiding conflict in the name of peace. And if that were the case, then, then Jesus would not have been a peacemaker. So a true peacemaker is not afraid of making waves if it will lead to shalom peace in the long run. World War II is a great example of this. In January 1933, Hitler becomes the chancellor of Germany by March of that same year, the first concentration camp is opened. Nine days after that, Hitler declares himself having dictatorial powers. Yet, for the most part, Germany didn't do much. The next year, Hitler declares himself the, the Fuhrer. By 1935, Hitler violates the, the, uh, a treaty by drafting people into uh, the army. And yet, in the name of peace, none of the surrounding countries do much of anything. And over the next few years, Germany invades surrounding countries. And then when they do that, when they invade that country, they'll say, we're not going to do it anymore. In, in the name of peace, no one does much of anything. And it's not until multiple years later, 1939, when Germany finally invades Poland 
that Britain and some other countries declare war on Germany. And by that point, it's almost too late. Germany at that point had enormous resources and were very, very close to invading Britain as well. And yet, even at that point, America didn't do anything for several more years. Now, all of these countries ended up causing more problems by simply trying to avoid conflict at the beginning. Now, obviously, it's easy to say these kinds of things 80 years or so later. Hindsight is 2020. But hopefully you can see that pursuing true peace does not always mean just avoiding conflict. But how do we do that? How do we become peacemakers? It can be easy to avoid conflict, but how do we strive for wholeness? How do we become makers of wholeness in people's lives? And the answer, just like the first one, is that in your own power, you can't. Peacemaking is only possible through Jesus Christ. Like I said in the first one, I'm going to come back to this at the end. So let's look at the third and final beatitude that we're going to be looking at today. And that is that peacemaking, uh, sorry, not peacemaking, that a blessed life comes from being merciful to others. Again, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, many years ago, before I came to this church, I had just gotten out of seminary, and I was interviewing for a position, a church position in Pennsylvania. Uh, it was a phone interview. I remember them asking me the question, what's the difference between grace and mercy? And I had to quickly scan all my seminary knowledge that I had just crammed in there for three years and to remember all the correct terminology here so that I wouldn't give a wrong answer on a basic question that could make me lose the job there. And so I told them that mercy is withholding deserved punishment while grace is giving an undeserved gift. And looking back, I would say that that's a pretty good answer there. Uh, even though I didn't end up getting the job, but still, it was a good answer. But that answer that I gave is also defining it in terms of how God uses it with us. But if we look at the, the idea of mercy more broadly, thinking about how we use it with others, mercy is showing kindness to choose by choosing forgiveness instead of repaying them for what they may deserve. So it's thinking, yes, yes, they are guilty, but I choose to forgive over repaying them for what they did to me. It's thinking, uh, uh, yes, yes, they've wronged me, but I choose to forgive them instead of wronging them back. Why would we do that though? After all, if, if they've wronged me, they deserve to be wrong back. And the reason is very simple, though not easy, that we should be merciful to others because God has been merciful to us. Every one of us are full of sin in our life. And because of that, we deserve punishment 
and death. And yet every one of us who have turned to Jesus Christ have been given a new life and have been forgiven and have been adopted into his family. Not because we've earned it, but because God's mercy is extended to us richly, richly. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. He adds in there because God, not because he has a lot of mercy, because he's full of mercy, but because he's rich in mercy. That's a big word there. I want to try to illustrate this by bringing someone up to the stage. Are there any young folks in here that like candy? Anyone here? All right, Paul, come on up. I, I told Paul, um, he, uh, if no one else volunteered, that he would get to come up. I gave them a chance. All right, so you can go ahead and uh, you can have a, uh, yeah, you can stay here. Um, so let me ask you, do you like candy? He does like candy. Shocker, right? Now, have you done anything today to deserve candy from me? Uh, You don't know? The the answer is, um, uh, well, not really. I mean, you did did start the car for us, so so that it was a warmer car this morning. Uh, but l- let's just say we give you a lot of stuff already. You have Legos abounding all over the house. You have a warm house. Uh, you had food last night. So I don't think you've done anything this morning to earn any candy. But guess what? Because I'm a nice guy, I'm going to let you choose one piece of candy here. So go ahead. You can pick out one piece. Lollipop. All right, that's nice. Now, the, the reality is, is that he didn't, he didn't earn candy from me, but I, I gave it to him anyways. That's nice. That's generous. But would any of us say that that's richly generous? That that's super generous? When we think about the riches of the mercy of God, we're not talking about one thing, but many things. And if I were to equate richly giving mercy to him, it would be uh, giving uh, me, richly giving him, God giving mercy, how I give candy there. It would not be giving just one piece, but I would have poured out my richness upon him. So here you go. You want to hold it? So what if I gave you that whole bucket of candy? So that is getting rich in candy there. But even that's not equivalent because God's not just generous in mercy. He's richly generous. And so hold on. So you get even more candy if you're richly generous there. Don't, don't lose it all. Don't lose it. Now that right there is rich in candy. And listen, that's just a small picture of what it means for God to be rich in mercy to us. Paul, you can go ahead and take a seat. Let's give him a hand. Hey, don't break the candy. You can take it with you. Take it with you. You don't want the bucket here? 
Don't worry, he knows he's going to lose it when he gets home. (laughs) And because God has been rich in mercy to us, we should do the same to others. Not because they deserve it, but because of what God has done in Christ through, uh, to us. He has richly extended his mercy to us. So listen, your, your siblings may not have earned your forgiveness, but if you follow Christ, then you still have a reason to forgive. Your spouse or coworker who wronged you may not have earned your forgiveness, but Christ in you gives you a reason to forgive. Not in the sense of allowing them to do something back to you again or putting yourself in danger or harm. That's not what I'm talking about here. But in Christ, he has forgiven you, so you should extend the same forgiveness to others. Just as you wrong Christ and are forgiven, let's do the same to others who have wronged us. Corey Timboon wrote a book called The Hiding Place, which is about helping Jews in World War II. And then uh, she was arrested, and her and her family were sent to a, a concentration camp. And after all the, this took place, uh, Corey made it out of the concentration camp alive, but her sister, I believe her name was Betsy, did not. And so I, w- I want to read to you uh, what happened right a little bit after uh, they were, she was released. She writes, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door at the processing center of the concentration camp. He was the first of the, of our actual jailers that had seen that I'd seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there the room full of mocking men, the heaping, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me at the church as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said. And to think that, as you say, he washed my sins away. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in this town, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, but I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. And while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. You see, we give mercy to others 
not because they deserve it, but because of the example of Jesus to us. So as I start to wrap things up, I want to give one last point that I've been referring to multiple times, and that is that these are only possible through a changed life in Jesus Christ. Meaning, as you begin to submit your life to Jesus Christ on a daily basis, he changes you. And as you grow more poor in spirit, as you get, the, get to the point of mourning for your sins, as you become more meek, more humble towards others, as you develop a, a deeper hunger for righteousness, God changes you, and then the next three Beatitudes that we looked at today start to grow in your life. When you give your life to Jesus, he makes you pure. And only then can you be pure in heart and then strive for purity on a daily basis. When you truly experience the mercies of God in your life and understand what it means to be merciful, that's when you can, un, uh, that's when you can begin to extend mercy in the way that God wants us to extend mercy to others. Only when Christ has given you wholeness in your life will you be able to be a peacemaker and spread the wholeness that Christ offers to everyone. So one pastor gave these thoughts about these three Beatitudes that we looked at today. He said, all three qualities are essentially divine qualities. We can only understand them if we do understand them only because we have first seen them exhibited by Christ. And because we have experienced them in Christ, we are on this account to exhibit them to others. The conclusion is that we shall be able to do this only as our lives are yielded to him. So I want to ask you, have you yielded your life to Jesus. But once you've done that, that first time, when you give your life to him, are you continuing to yield your life to Jesus on on a daily basis? The, The process of becoming more and more like Jesus, which is what the goal of a Christian is, involves a daily decision to yield your life to him. That, that's not what saves you. That daily decision is not what saves you. You're saved through Jesus, through putting your faith in him. He saves you that way. But listen, every day we must make a choice to yield our lives to him. And if we try to do that on our own, on our own or in our own power, we're just going to totally mess that up. So I want to close with this story here that I, that I read this week. It's about a church in Spain back in 2012, the the Sanctuary of Mercy Church in Borja, Spain. They had an aging painting of Jesus on their wall. It had been painted back in 1930, and so by 2012, it was about 80 years old, and it was definitely beginning to show its age. So the painting had deteriorated and, and faded, and the church members noticed this. And so there was this one 80-year-old church member named Cecilia Jimenez. And she took it upon herself to restore the 80-year-old painting. Now, she had good intentions, 
but it didn't turn out very well. It was bad, really, really bad. In fact, it was so bad that it made international news. The New York Times said that it was, quote, probably the worst art restoration project of all time. One Spanish blog called it the restoration that turned into destruction. And then BBC said, quote, the delicate brush strokes by the original artist have been buried under a haphazard splattering of paint. The once dignified portrait of Jesus now resembles a crayon sketch of a very hairy monkey in an ill-fitting tunic. It's the British, right? So Jimenez was later interviewed. And at times, uh, I read that she first blamed the priest that was there because apparently it's always the priest or pastor's fault. But... After talking about it for a while, she finally took responsibility for the poor restoration. And and she said, quote, we've always fixed things here at the church on our own. And we saw everything was falling down. And so we fixed it. And listen, when I read that story, I I thought to myself, man, what a what a picture of what we can do in our own lives. What a picture of what happens when we try to do things in our own power. When we try to do these three beatitudes in our own strength, and our own power, we're going to end up looking like a monkey with a tunic. <laughs> but if you will give your life to Jesus, if you will submit your life to him on a daily basis, then he will work powerfully in your life. And if you'll do that, you will truly be blessed. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up and we're going to close with one last song. Uh, let me-